21st century Christianity is having an identity crisis. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, you'd reckon we should have that one sorted out by now, wouldn't you? Um, if we'd ask Joe Blow, or, you know, old Joe Blow off the street or Jill Blow off the street, what does it mean to be a Christian? Their answer would most likely be of one, one of two different things. They would probably say, you go to church to be a Christian, or to become a Christian, you live a good life, you do good, you don't do bad, maybe pray occasionally and be a nice person. If we were to ask some Roman Catholics what, what they say, well, they might, some of them might say, well, as long as you're baptised into the Roman Catholic Church, that's it, enough. If we were to ask a more reformed church like the Lutherans or the Presbyterians or maybe some uniting churches um, and many others, they, they might say something along the lines of repent and believe in Jesus for your salvation and be baptised. Uh, some churches would say, just believe in Jesus, that, that, that's all you've got to do, just believe that Jesus died to save your sin. A more liberal church um, might say, well, you should take Jesus as an example, an example of love and, and live in love as Jesus did. Someone who would align themselves with what they call progressive Christianity might say, well, it doesn't matter which God you follow. It doesn't matter whether it's the God of the Muslims or the God of the Hindus or the God of the Christians. It doesn't matter which God. What matters is the moral and ethical teaching that we can glean from these religions. A more evangelical church, such as we are here at Bush Disciples, might focus on the evangelical message. Um, so if our community generally believe, as I suspect about 90% of them do, that becoming a Christian means living a good life and doing good stuff and not bad stuff, well, the evangelical message must counter that with a very clear message that we can never be good enough. Um, it's beyond our capacity to be good enough. And, if, and it's only because of God's grace and mercy that any of us can be saved. Salvation is an undeserved gift that the Lord gives to us. Now, we understand that, don't we? Like, like um, God's standard is not a 50% pass mark. Some of us wish it was. And it's not like there's a giant set of cosmic scales where all of our good deeds are measured on this side and all of our bad deeds are measured on this side and provided the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then, then it's all going to be okay. That's simply not the way it works. Because if I have ever sinned at all, I'm not fit for God's kingdom. It's as simple as that. And no amount of good things that I could do could ever make up for the one single evil act that I have already done. And so we preach, repent from sin, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptised into Jesus in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. That's the evangelical message that we preach. And that's how you become a Christian. But the identity crisis of the Christian church stretches even further than that. Once I am saved, how then should I live? Once I become a Christian, how should I live as a Christian? Once I've become a disciple of Jesus, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And a very nice religious answer for that question, and it is biblical too, is we live by the Spirit. And that sounds all very nice and very religious, but what on earth does it mean? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? And different churches and different Christians have such wide views on what it means to live by the Spirit that our teaching that we hear in churches can be like chalk and cheese. And so 
we could we could go to one church and, and we could get teaching on how to be rich. And basically it's teaching about greed. While some other churches might teach, uh, uh, you know, that you should take a vow of poverty. Some ministers have removed the word sin from their vocabulary because they feel it's an outdated concept that's not relevant to us anymore, while some other ministers feel that, that it's their duty to make their congregation squirm in the pew every single Sunday as they condemn them for their sinfulness. There are some churches who only ever preach the cross and being saved by grace and condemn anyone who will ever preach a need for personal holiness and righteousness and say, well, that's all law. We preach grace. They're they're preaching law. Whereas you go into some other churches and and grace is not preached hardly at all. And for them, living by the Spirit, it boils down to a set of rules and regulations that one must live by. Some churches celebrate homosexuality as a gift from God, while some other churches would want to enact the Leviticus death penalty upon them. For some churches, they, they would say, oh, abortions, that's fine, it's a woman's right to choose. While some other churches will say, no, 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 that, that's, that's murder. And in the name of Christ, some individuals have bombed abortion clinics and have assassinated their staff. Some churches would say, never, ever, ever get involved in politics, whereas for some churches, that's their main game. For them, the idea of righteousness is for them to tell the government how the government should behave. So there's such a wide views of what it means to live in the spirit. But today I want to focus on the identity crisis within the broader evangelical church. Now, you know what I mean by evangelical? I already said that evangelical church is is um, where we preach the evangelical message, but we are also characterised by having a high value for the scriptures, the written word of God. Some more liberal veins of the church would say some of the Bible is useful, but an awful lot of it's outdated. But as an evangelical church, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and its usefulness is timeless. We believe that God speaks to us through the scriptures today. And in the scriptures, we're not only taught how to be saved, we're also taught how the church should function and how we as Christians should live. And I'm so thankful to the Lord that he teaches us these things in the Bible. If I didn't have the Bible to preach from, what would I teach? If if I didn't have confidence in the word of God... um, What value would there be in any message that I could spend time preparing and bring to you today? A more liberal church might base their message on science or philosophy or humanistic or social content. But what value is there in that? What power can come from those areas? Whereas every time you open your Bible, there's power right there in those words. Power to challenge. Power to comfort. Power to transform, power to convict, power to save, power to give life. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's written word. So, if the evangelical church in general places such a high value on scripture and what the Lord would teach us through his words in our Bibles, why Why 
are we seeing the values of the world becoming commonplace within the church? And nothing is done to weed it out. Sex before marriage. Couples living together rather than getting married. Divorce. Abortions. Drunkenness. Drug usage. Foul language. Dishonest financial dealings. Theft. Filthy joking. Lying. Christians dabbling in the occult or in Eastern religious practices like yoga and whatnot. Gossip. Greed. Christians dating non-Christians, adultery, storing up wealth for a wealthy retirement, self-aggrandisement. Why do we see these values, which are values of the world, becoming commonplace within the church? And even in the lives of some who claim to be Bible-believing Christians, for that matter. Why? And I'll name it. To some extent... It's because of the belief of some that living by the Spirit means we make no effort on our part to do good. Some believe that if we make any effort, that's legalism. That's not living by grace. And it's only the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us that we begin to naturally, or probably a better word would be supernaturally, do good instead of bad. And so in effect, with this view, our behaviour is God's domain, not ours. And they believe that when we do something wrong, we shouldn't feel guilty about it because Jesus has dealt with that sin on the cross. And so we have complete freedom and complete forgiveness. And, and, and even when as a Christian I do wrong, I shouldn't feel guilty about that. There's no re- need for me to repent because I've already been forgiven. That's what some folk believe. Some have disparagingly labelled this as easy believism. Believe in Jesus and his work on the cross and there's no more demands on you. He'll do the work, you do nothing. Now this has been a very long introduction to set the scene for what James is talking about in this morning's reading. Because this is the same old misunderstanding of the gospel that has been in the church since its beginning. For example... Um, In the church at Corinth, a man was shacked up with his stepmother and that church were proud of it. They thought that this was living by the Spirit and that he had the freedom to do that until Paul wrote to them and said, no way, that does not belong in the church. I believe there is confusion between the evangelical question what must I do to be saved? And the discipleship question, how now should I live? They're two different questions, which some confuse with the one answer. So as you know, being saved by grace means none of us earn our way to heaven by doing good. And even once we are saved, none of us will be perfect. At least I'm speaking from my experience. You you might be perfect, but I'm certainly not. And it's only because Jesus died for our sins and because he is quick to forgive us that we can be saved. But once we are saved, how does Jesus expect us to live? How do we honour God with our lives? And the answer to that question is the major focus of the whole of James's letter. And he brings it to a a pinnacle here in today's reading when he says, 
be doers of the word and not hearers only. Christianity is not just about what we hear and it's not just about what we believe for that matter. Our faith is displayed in our actions. This is a commandment. Be a doer of the word. And it's not something that James has gone and made up. It's something which he's repeating from the mouth of Jesus. Who here likes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Does anyone like that sermon? It's a beauty. Have you managed to do everything that's in it? Yeah, every now and then, I probably need to do it again, but every now and then I actually do that as a sermon. I just read the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish. And it's it's just so confronting, one thing after another, about what it means to live in God's kingdom. Anyway, right at the end of that letter, can anyone tell me what story Jesus tells right at the end of that letter? Anyone know? Sam should know it. It's all about the building industry, Sam. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the crash of it. Last night I was at a party and I was speaking with someone there and they were talking to me about how they used to be churchgoers. Um, but something that they realised is they've watched and seen just as many people going out the back door as what come in the front door, you know what I mean? They sort of come and be part of church for a while, but then they just fade away. And I think this could have a bit to do with it. If we don't become, if we don't simply, if we just hear, but don't become doers, then it is just going to fade away and, and we're going to fall away like that house built on the sand. It's not going to last. And every time we hear the word of God and don't put it into action, Jesus is saying it's utter foolishness. And James is saying if we, if we just hear it and don't do it, we're deceiving ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is comparing the way that the disciples of Jesus should live with the way people of the world should live and he says, that is not the way you learned in Christ. There's a very big difference between the way that people of Jesus should live compared to the people of the world. And while Paul is explaining it mostly in, in, in spiritual terms, James is teaching us what it means in very practical terms. And the two aren't at odds with one another, the two go together. What the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us must be accompanied by our deeds. And the fact that we are commanded to do these deeds leaves no doubt at all that we have a part to play here. We must put the effort into obedient Christian living. Why would God give us a commandment if, he, if he's going to do it all anyway? 
we wouldn't have to follow a commandment. He wouldn't have to give us a commandment. It would be something that just happens. But he does give us a commandment. Be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. James uses a bit of a strange illustration to make the point. He says, Christians who are not doers of the word are like a man who looks in the mirror and then he goes away and forgets what he looks like. Now, most of our wives probably think that, um, have you done your hair? Oh, yeah, yeah. They mostly probably think that we did look in the mirror and didn't take any notice. But what's Paul getting at? Well, I reckon he's taking us back and getting us to remember our salvation experience. Who cries out for a saviour? Someone who knows they need saving. Hey, what did Jesus come to save us from? Not a trick question. You have to be loud because I'm deaf and it's windy. What did Jesus come to save us from? Sin. Our sin. So what do I need to be aware of before I cry out to Jesus to save me? Once again, not a trick question. Sin. My sin. How do I become aware of that sin? Well, God's law reveals to us what sin is and the Holy Spirit convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin. And so to be saved means that first, now this isn't a popular thing to say, but first I have to come to a loathing self-awareness of personal sin. I must recognise sin within me and hate that sin for what it is. I I, I want to be free of it. I, I want it gone. It's awful. Get rid of that sin that's in me and I don't want to be sinful. And if you cannot think of a point in your life when you've felt like that, when you have felt so wretched, when you were so convicted of sin that, that you just wanted to be free from it, more than that, you, you needed to be set free from it. If you can't think of a time when you felt like that, you might probably at this point start asking the question, am I saved? Because I don't know what I've been saved from. And you may have probably never encountered the living God. Because when you come before the holy living God and you encounter God in a personal way, you can't help but feel how wretched am I. You ever tried to take a photograph of something and there's a really bright light behind it? You got a picture there? Yep. And so you want the picture to look like the picture on, on your right, um, but it ends up like the picture on the left. That's because the bright light, in, in that bright light, everything else just appears as darkness. When one encounters the living God in all of his holiness, It brings about a self-awareness and self-loathing of sin. The prophet Isaiah, when the Lord appeared to him, Woe is me! 
I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he was going to die. And this self-awareness of sin, it's like looking in a mirror for the first time and seeing ourselves with the eyes of God and seeing all of the sin and all of the wrong and evil and vile, all of the hatred and bitterness and pride and lust and envy and vulgarity. I can see everything that separated me from God, everything that I've done that earns me death. I see all of this sin living inside of me. I hate it. I want it gone. I don't just want to be a better person. I want to be righteous in God's sight. And then we hear the word of grace. Jesus says, I died for you. I take your sin. You have just repented. Now believe in me, trust in me, follow me. When Isaiah had said, woe is me, and I'm a man of unclean lips, what am I going to do? He felt he was going to die. He says, then one of the seraph, that's one of the angels, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar. And he touched my lips. He said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And we fall down on our knees in repentance, baptised, sin is washed away, saved by the grace of God in Christ, I'm saved. What now? I'm free, total freedom. What now? Well, Jesus has given me a new life. Not just a reconditioned life, not just a modified life, a new life. Now, what do you do with life? You live it. What do you do with a new life? You live a new life. And every day we're going to be be presented with two options. Live the new life that Jesus has given me or live the old life that he's taken away from me. And if we don't live the new life, what have we forgotten? Have we forgotten that time when the Holy Spirit made us look intently into that mirror and we saw ourselves as we truly were? And we knew that we needed a saviour and we cried out to God for his mercy and we cried out for this new life. Have we forgotten that? What I believe James is saying is don't forget where you've come from. Don't ever get so proud or so religious that you forget what you were. That you forget what you needed to be set free from. And so he contrasts the man who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he was like with what we should do. Once we are saved, we are part of what he calls the perfect law, the law of liberty. Now, we sometimes start 
getting into our heads that the law isn't a good thing. The law is wonderful. The law is delightful. In Christ, we are free to obey his commandments. To obey God's law is not a drudgery. When Jesus is in your heart, when, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a privilege, it's wonderful, it's delightful, it's good times to be doers of the word. And we will be blessed in the doing. It's not like, oh, this is so terrible. I've got to live like Jesus lived. Isn't that awful? How ridiculous is that? Jesus is telling me to forgive these people. I enjoy so much being unforgiving. What? The Bible tells me I'm not allowed to get drunk. What a drag. I was hoping to get drunk, lay in the gutter and vomit this weekend. I mean, the Bible tells me not to swear. But I get so much good feeling out of swearing. What a drag it would have to be to give up swearing. It's not like that, is it? This is why it's called the law of liberty. We are free to live this new, better life that God has given us. And it's a blessing. If we just hear the word, or just read God's word, and aren't changed by it, and don't do it, if we just come along to church, sing a few songs, listen to the long-winded preacher and then go home again unchanged, that's self-deception. We might feel that we've been all very religious and that we've fulfilled all religious righteousness by coming to church and doing these things and maybe even reading our Bible, but what good does it do us? It's worthless. And James gives us a couple of very practical examples that cut pretty deep. He says, if you think you're doing pretty good with God, but don't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. And James is going to have a fair bit more to say as we work our way through this letter about the tongue and how we use it and how destructive it can be. And he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. Right? Pure religion, undefiled religion, has legs on it. It's a doing thing. It goes and visits those who can't care for themselves. We are commanded, you're getting this, we are commanded to be doers of the word. And he's just pointed out two aspects. He's given us an example of personal holiness, all right? God's word, his commandments, the words of the prophets, the teachings of Jesus, the exhortation of the apostles are all in agreement that our Lord demands personal holiness in his children. That's pretty unambiguous as you read the scriptures. You can't possibly read the scriptures and go, well, God's okay without me being, with me not being holy. He, he demands it. And he also demands the righteous acts of his children. Because the children are like the father. My, my boys hate it, but so, so many times people have said to me, your boys are so much like you. And I go, aren't they, aren't they lucky? And they go, 
No. <laughs> now, of course, we're not always going to personally achieve this holiness or this righteousness. You might. I, I, I have a bit of trouble. You will fail as I will fail and do fail. And the Lord is gracious and forgiving when we repent anew of our sin and wrongdoing and ask for his forgiveness, guess what he does? He forgives us. The New Testament knows nothing of a once-only repentance. Time and time again, Christians are told to repent of their sin. And when we do, the Lord forgives us. Don't just be a hearer. Don't just be a believer. Be a doer. Be a doer because of what you've heard. Be a doer because of what you believe. But be a doer. Honour God in that way.